0: Today on Better News Radio with Pastor Ricky Alcantad. This is what the book of
1: Esther has been teaching us. Even when we can't seem to see God, even when it looks like our lives are ruled by mere chance, God is still right there protecting his people through his providence. It is God's action that is ultimately decisive in the book of Esther of Esther. You know why? Because this story is ultimately and fully about God saving his people.
0: Hope in God oh my soul So often, it's hard to see God working in our lives. Maybe we're looking for something obvious, like being able to see angels stopping out-of-control vehicles. The truth is, God works more often than not behind the scenes. We only see His hand after the fact. Pastor Ricky continues teaching from the fascinating story of Esther, where we're allowed to peek behind the curtain, as it were. In this story, we can observe all of the players involved and watch God orchestrating circumstances for maximum effect. Let's join Pastor Ricky for part two of his message, where the story turns. And Haman went out that day
1: joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Understand what's happening here. Haman is essentially gathering his friends and family to boast to them about how wonderful he is. Verse 12, then Haman said, "'Even Queen Esther, let no one but me "'come with the king to the feast she prepared. "'And tomorrow also I'm invited by her "'together with the king.'" Listen, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. For all of his riches, all of his power, he does not have the one thing he wants, which is respect. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, well, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. If you think gallows, you may be thinking like the Western gallows where there's like a noose and stuff. Not to get morbid here, but the gallows in Persia, what's translated as gallows really was essentially a huge pike, a huge pike set into the ground that the person would be impaled upon. And he's building this thing just for scale, basically as high as a radio tower or something like that. So although a whole city would be relatively flat and he's building this thing way up in the air because he wants everyone to see this guy being destroyed publicly in front of everyone. So Esther does this great heroic act. She goes to the king, she wins favor, she's working a plan, but it's too slow. By the time she even puts her plan in motion, her uncle is going to be dead. See, there is good news though. There is good news in that the book of Esther reminds us that the evil of Haman and men like him, that kind of evil is real and it exists in the world. But the book of Esther also shows us that that kind of evil is always kept on a leash. As we're gonna see, God does not allow it to go where it could go. We saw that God can even use evil for his purposes. God is not evil, he does not do evil, but he can work evil in his plans to end for good, as we saw in the story of Joseph. And what's important to note here is that this seems like Esther throws her best into the situation, but Haman, because of his position, because of his political maneuvering, is still supreme that he will always outmaneuver Esther in one way or another. But there is one person that Haman cannot outmaneuver. The second section this morning is what only God can do. The first section was what Esther can do. The second section is what only God can do. This is where we get to the exact turning point of the whole book of Esther this is the thing that this entire piece of literature turns on and remember that throughout this whole book there's been no mention of God at all again and again and again chapter after chapter and it's leaving us asking where is the Lord in the middle of all this why won't he come and help his people is it because his people have turned away from him is the Lord abandoned them now but look look here Chapter six, verse one. On that night, the king could not sleep and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who had guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the young man who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? And now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. I don't know about you, but this is not screaming turning point of the whole book to me. This is not screaming, here, this is the decisive moment that everything will turn around. No, what seems really pedestrian and ordinary doesn't seem like it has a great effect on the rest of the book. It seems like a strange side trail from the main plot. What we find is that the king, one night, he just could not sleep. Have you ever been unable to sleep? Why were you unable to sleep? Maybe you were uncomfortable, maybe you ate something, maybe you were restless, maybe you were thinking about things, maybe you're feeling things, maybe you had too much of something, too much to eat, too much to drink, you have to go to the bathroom, you just can't sleep. Why couldn't this king sleep? We don't know he can't sleep. And this king of Persia, out of everything he could do in the middle of the night, he could have people come in and juggle for him. He has a giant harem at his disposal. He has all kinds of people to entertain him in all kinds of ways. What he decides to do is bring the book of memorable deeds. This would have been a dusty, dry accounting of the things that happen in his kingdom. This would be a cross between the worst U.S. history book you have with the phone book, where 80% of the U.S. book of history is just an accounting of this guy did this, and this is how he was rewarded. This would be name after name, and so the king's lying there, the person's reading, this happened, and then this. This happened, and then this. And this person received this, and this person did evil, and he received this. And so the king is lying there, and all of a sudden... He happens upon the story. Out of all of the chronicles, he happens on the story where Mordecai saves the king from an evil plot. And he wakes up and realizes, wait a minute, did we do anything to thank this person for this? In the ancient world, it would have been crucial for the king to lavishly reward anyone that revealed plots against them. Why? Because he wants to encourage other people to come forward and reveal other plots. Because if those people are not rewarded, then the next time the king's going to be assassinated, they may just say, you know what? Huh? Maybe the next guy will be a little more generous. So this is a matter of life and death for the king as he's concerned about this. And he decides, you know what? We're gonna do something about this. This is probably 4.30 in the morning. And he says, you know what? We're gonna figure this out. I'm gonna go out into the court and I'm gonna find somebody to help me with this. Meanwhile, this is like a comedy. I mean, really, Esther has so many features of a comedy because Haman is so ready to have the king's permission to impale Mordecai on a spike that he wakes up at four in the morning, gets dressed and decides to hang out in the court of the king on the off chance that at some point that morning, the king will be ready to see him. So you have two people entering the courtyard at the same time, Haman, who is ready to ask that Mordecai finally be killed and the king entering, who can help me honor Mordecai? Again, this seems a strange side trail, but I want to show you something. I got to go literature professor for a second here and explain to you that Hebrew literature often emphasizes a point with something called a chiasm. We see this sometimes even in the Gospels where you have kind of a sandwich between a parable and a parable and then in the middle is an action or vice versa. They're a way of emphasizing the importance of something. So some of the Psalms are structured like this where they'll start with giving glory to the King and end with giving glory to the King and then kind of uh, then... A recounting of his mighty deeds, and then at the end, a recounting of his mighty deeds, and then it kind of works its way to a point in the middle. It's almost like a triangle to put an arrow on one particular truth that drives the rest of the structure. This is unusual for us. We don't have the same type of literature, but I want to show you this. The book opens with the king of Persia's greatness and it ends with Mordecai's greatness. It continues with Haman being elevated. It ends with Mordecai being elevated. It continues with Haman's decree to kill the Jews. It ends with Mordecai's decree to save the Jews. It continues with Esther and Mordecai's plan. It ends with Esther and Mordecai's plan. Then you have a banquet and then you have another banquet and in the middle, right in the middle, is this story, the king wakes up in the middle of the night. The entire book, almost down to the number of verses, is a triangle, and the triangle is pointing at this exact text. Look at the structure of the banquets of the story. It starts with a banquet for the nobles of the empire. It ends with a banquet for all the Jews. It continues with a banquet for all the men in Susa. It ends with feasting throughout the empire. It continues with Esther's coronation banquet, and then feasting in the celebration of Mordecai's promotion. And then Esther throws a banquet for the king and Haman. Esther throws another banquet for the king and Haman. And in the middle, again, the king wakes up. Now, why in the world does the entire story of Esther hinge on the king waking up in the middle of the night and remembering something he forgot? This seems like a non-sequitur. Here's what this means. We would expect that the story of Esther would turn on her bold entrance to stand before the king, but it doesn't. In fact, after she does this, things actually get worse. No, the story turns on the king who happens to wake up in the middle of the night, and who happens to say, I want to read some old record books, and happens to fall upon Mordecai's unrewarded deed, and happens that this deed went unrewarded earlier, so that at this exact moment, the king and his favor turn on a dime toward the Jews. This is what the book of Esther has been teaching us. Even when we can't seem to see God, even when it looks like our lives are ruled by mere chance, God is still right there protecting his people through his providence. It is God's action that is ultimately decisive in the book of Esther. You know why? Because this story is ultimately and fully about God saving his people. A Jewish commentary says this about verse one. It says, on that night, the king could not sleep. But the Jewish commentator translates it this way. The Lord took sleep from the king that night. This is the point of the whole book of Esther. We act, but God is the one who turns the story. Now, this isn't diminishing Esther's heroic actions. We are in many ways meant to read what Esther does as heroic, as commendable, as something we should imitate. But ultimately, it takes the providence of God doing what only he can do to turn the story. And as soon as this happens, we see, well, we see the reversal begins. Verse five says this, and the king's young men told him, oh, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. And so Haman came in. You imagine Haman coming in. I just wish I could see the look on his face in this scene. Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, well, for, the, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let, um, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn and, and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse throughout the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you have mentioned. That's my favorite line. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to, whom the man, to the man whom the king delights to honor. This is interesting, as we'll see in a moment. Interesting because the king understands that he has already ordered the destruction of the Jews. And he understands that this Jew has just saved his life. And perhaps it is even with some regret that the king thinks, well... Even if Mordecai the Jew must perish, let him be honored for what he did do, even if he must go. See, the king's heart begins to turn decisively. And the ground is prepared so that when Esther makes her request, it doesn't fall on hard soil, but on soft soil. He's not pushing back about the amount of money or how am I going to reverse the decree or why didn't you tell me you were Jewish? But he will go into that meeting later that day thinking, a Jew saved my life. And wait a minute, my own wife is one of them. This is what turns the entire story. And it's funny, it turns so decisively here that even the pagan people who don't believe in God at all see the turn happening. Verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, (laughs) I'm sorry, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Listen to this. Then his wise man and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people. You will not overcome him, but surely fall before him. I mean, those are some friends, right? Like they're the people who are like, build the gallows, yeah. And then he comes home, they're like, oh man, you're dead. (laughs) You are dead, man. And listen to this, this is, the book of Esther is just masterfully put together. Verse 14, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. See, what's going on in this is the quiet but powerful hand of the Lord, moving pieces around the board to result in the salvation of his people. God intervenes in a way that only he could, as we've covered before, not through thunder and lightning and plagues like the book of Exodus, but rather in Esther, we find a quiet, subtle almost impossible to detect providence that points to the exact same thing. Sometimes God works through thunder and lightning and voices from the air. And sometimes he works quietly with his providence. See, God has turned the story. Nothing can stop it now. Now there's two implications of this that I don't want us to miss. The book of Esther reveals the kind of God that we have, a God that intervenes to turn the story where we could not. And this God, this action is really the heart of the whole Bible. See, God turns the story of the whole world. In a sense, the Old and New Testament are built like a triangle to point to one decisive turn in the middle of history. See, the story of the Bible is the story of all humanity, where in the beginning, God created everything good, but humanity chose rebellion and sin against God. And we had no way to get our relationship with God right. We came under God's just judgment. But the story begins to turn on God's action. Rather than than abandoning the world, God launches a plan to save the world. See, we often read the Bible like we are Heroes. We're looking for ourselves in the pages of scripture, and certainly there are people to imitate. But the Bible shows us that even the heroes of old are flawed and broken people, and instead, it is God who decisively turns circumstances again and again for the preservation and protection of his people. And that's not all that God did, God launched this plan through his people, through the Israelites, to save the world. And think about what even the book of Esther reveals about who God is. It reveals that even after his people's sin, God did not abandon them, but had mercy on them, even when they were in exile. It reveals that even when God's people were far from their homeland, God, not a Persian king, was the one who's ultimately in charge of their fate Isaiah 59, one says, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, meaning that there's no place, no circumstance that God's hand goes, you know what? Oh, I I just missed it. I can't help you. No, his arm is not too short to save. This reveals that even after God's people broke their promises to him, God will not break his promises to his people. And this ultimately is why God intervenes to save Esther and her people, not because of their commitment to him, which they had already failed at, but instead because of his commitment to them. And this book of Esther points forward to a greater reversal on which the history of the world would turn. The reversal began when God sent Jesus, his son, but instead of embracing his son, humanity crucified him and killed him and the story looked dark and hope seemed lost but the turn was coming friends and the turn came on the third day and as we sung this morning up from the grave he rose Again, And it was all revealed that the Son of God had been sent to die and rise again, that the evil of crucifixion and false trials was actually used by God to turn the whole story on its head. The turn of all history was that Jesus died in the place of his people to keep his promises, that Jesus died to take the justice that we deserved on himself so that if we believe in him, we could have new Life And from there, friends, everything in the New Testament begins working backwards. We get this picture of new life coming to people in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This new kingdom of Jesus breaking forth into the hearts of people around the world. People going from death to life. And this reversal, friends, will continue and continue and grow until one day Jesus will once again split the sky and all will be renewed and death itself would be reversed. And that on the turn of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, the story will change for all eternity.
0: So much more to discover in this God of Chance series, but that's all we have time for on today's edition of Better News Radio. If you'd like to hear today's message again, or if you'd like to find more teachings by Pastor Ricky, visit our website at betternewsradio.com. If you'd like a full-length CD version of today's teaching, you can order one by emailing us at radio at betternewsradio.com. We're so glad that we can bring you God's Word through the ministry of Better News Radio, and we want you to know that we're praying for you always we want to encourage you. If you haven't done so already, find a good Bible teaching church to become a part of. By joining a church, you gain a support group of fellow believers who put God's love into practice and can help you grow in your own relationship with your Creator. You too can contribute in your own unique way as well. And together, the body of Christ will reach many with the good news of the gospel. If you're in the El Paso area, we would love to have you come see us in person at Cross of Grace Church. We meet every Sunday at 10.30 a.m to worship God and hear what He has to teach us through His Word. Find out more under the Community tab at BetterNewsRadio.com. If you're not in El Paso, there's also some great resources to help you find a great church in your area. Thanks for listening to Pastor Ricky's message today from the God of Chance series. He'll have more to share next time right here on Better News Radio. God,
1: oh my soul